This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to meet a Denver man today who says he has two birthdays. The first, says Jack Adler, was when he was born. The second was when U.S. troops liberated him and thousands of other Jews from the Dachau Death March at the end of World War II. His liberation came this month, May 1st, in 1945. Jack Adler is the only member of his immediate family who survived the Holocaust. Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to go back uh, quite a bit, actually, to your hometown of Pabianica, Poland. I understand your family was upper middle class before the war. In 1939, the Nazis invade. You were 10 at that time. What do you remember about those forces coming into town? Well, I remember, actually, I was in the backyard climbing a tree. And suddenly I've heard loud noises, like heavy movement of vehicles and so on. So I climbed down, went out front of the building, and I saw Nazi tanks, vehicles, motorcycles. And that's how I realized we were being invaded. It had to feel quite ominous. Well, I didn't know. As a young boy, I didn't comprehend what to expect. How were the adults reacting around you? Well, you know, the parents, of course, had a better inclination what could happen because they had the history of the Kristallnacht, which appeared the previous year in Germany. This is However, they would the Jewish neighborhood was just destroyed in the middle uh, of the uh, night. Exactly. However, they wouldn't share it with the kids like a 10-year-old to instill fear. They wouldn't say much. Are you glad they kept it in a way um, mysterious for you or a secret for as long as they could? Of course. You know, I could understand now being a parent and a grandparent. I wouldn't want to share any history like that with anyone. This becomes an unavoidable truth by 1940 when in February your family is forced into a ghetto. What are your recollections of that transition from being free and in your own home, to this, you know, roundup. Well, there were six of us in one room in the ghetto. It was very congested, obviously. And uh, it was difficult to comprehend for a young child. Why? Because I'm Jewish. Am I put in such a situation as the ghetto? At that point, you knew you were being singled out for your Judaism. Uh, Absolutely. We knew they came in, Nazi soldiers would enter the ghetto, pick up men to work outside of the ghetto. And this was a daily routine almost, a daily expectation in the ghetto. Six people sharing one room. What was that experience like? What did it mean for daily living? Well, it was. <laughs> we had no running water, no toiletry. They wanted to instill this type of fear and life for the Jewish people, and they succeeded, unfortunately. Did you lose family members? And I think you were in the Pabianica ghetto and then transferred to the larger one in Woj nearby, right? Exactly. Yeah. I lost my mother and brother in the ghetto of Pabianica. Your mother and brother. What, what did they die of? Malnutrition. I think my mother passed away before. A broken heart. What makes you say that? Because I I could tell, we could tell the difference, how she acted, how she 
behaved after my older brother died from malnutrition and disease. He went first. Yes. And she followed. Exactly. Did you think that you were next? We tried not to think that way, but we didn't know what to expect, obviously, from day to day. What was expected of a 11-year-old boy in, in the ghetto? In the ghetto of Pabianica, what I did, I helped clean the streets for the Christian side. And uh, So you were let out of the ghetto long enough to clean to Christian streets. And in the winter months, the shovel snow spread sand on the ice, stuff like that. It's very intense labor, and you weren't being well-fed. Not at all. But as a result of working, you got a little extra nutrition. What did what that they mean? Call a little, an extra piece of bread a day or something like that. I think that gold star Jews were forced to wear has become such a symbol of the Holocaust. Do you remember wearing that? Of course. You had to have it if you worked outside, even on behalf of the Christians or Nazis. You had to have whatever you wore, had to have two stars of David, one in the front and one in the back, with the inscription Jude, which means Jew. In German. Yes. You and your remaining family members... Uh, as I said, were sent to the Woj ghetto about 10 miles away. And there, I understand you had an encounter with someone named Chaim Rumkowski. Um, he was Polish and Jewish. Absolutely. And the Nazis had appointed him to head the Council of Elders in the ghetto. It, it was not uncommon in ghettos and, frankly, in concentration camps for Jews to be given some amount of power. And for Jews to be quite cruel to other Jews, uh, prior to the Nazi invasion, Rumkowski had run a Jewish orphanage in Woj. That's true. Tell us about your encounter with him. Well, we were moved from the Papianica ghetto into the Lodger ghetto the middle of May 1942. Rumkowski was ordered in September of 1942 to provide Jewish boys turned them over to the Nazis. I was one of them. For what purpose? I exterminate them, and they were all exterminated in Halno. Extermination came in Poland. However, the quota was met, and they approached me. We had Jewish police in the ghetto as well. And they say, you can go home, because they filled the quota. And I came home, my father was there with a cousin who also lived in the ghetto, and my two sisters, they couldn't believe. They never thought they'll see me again. So I escaped in that fashion. The randomness of how someone survives exactly. is, is so unsettling, Jack. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Did you know young people who had been killed in that? Uh, oh, yes. I had many friends in the uh, group of 5,000. You know, a lot of, most of them were about my age at the time. And how do you reconcile that a Jew was involved in that, Rumkowski? Do, do you see him as a sympathetic figure who was just another victim forced to do that or, or as a complicit figure? If it wouldn't be Rumkowski, they would select another Jew because in the Pabianica ghetto, they had the Jewish committee as well. Their the primary functions were to provide the Nazis in Pabianica laborers to work outside of the ghetto, and to distribute the inhabitants of the ghetto, the daily food ration. 
so that there will be somebody else. But the irony of it is, if I may interject something, yeah. when they liquidated the ghetto of Lodge in the late summer 1944, Chaim Rumkowski and his family were brought to the railroad station from which they transported us from the ghetto to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And he he knew the head of the Gestapo because he worked with him. He had filled his requests. And he said to him, could I have a separate car for me and my family? He said, of course. So they put him in an empty car. And then when he, the head of the Gestapo walked away, he told them, fill it up, you know, fill up the car. And when he arrived to Auschwitz, they marched him and his family to the guest chamber. So the notion that he would have some favor in return for his work was... Exactly. Was, didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Those were trains you boarded as well to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And I understand that when you arrived, you were greeted by German soldiers and prisoners at the camp. What did those Jewish prisoners say to you when you first arrived? Well, their job was primarily to take away whatever meager belongings one brought along with them. And they whispered to us, when you march, meaning for the selection process, look strong if you want to live. You just arrived at the Auschwitz-Birkenau extermination and selection camp. That's how we found out where we arrived. We didn't know where we were. And if you appeared strong, that meant you could work, and that meant you could stay alive. Exactly, until you're no longer useful. And so at this point, your mother has died, your younger brother, your younger sister died at Auschwitz, your older sister at Bergen-Belsen. Your father is still in the picture. Did you manage to stay together at Auschwitz? Yes, we did stay together for... The duration in Auschwitz for about a week or so. How is that possible? Well, we had to go through daily selection processes. Meaning who would live and who would die? Uh, Who goes to the right, to the left, uh, to the extermination section or the work section. How did you deal with that psychologically each day having your life on the line? Because you're what? You're, You're in your early teens at this point. When we arrived to Auschwitz, I was 15. 15? Yes. And uh, it's amazing how the human mind, you know, people who gave up hope, you know, when those who found out what happened to those who went to the left, who were killed in the gas chambers, the barbed wires around surrounding the Auschwitz-Birkenau had electricity and electric barbed wire. So when people found out the following day what happened to the loved ones who went to the other side, committed suicide. And you would find bodies hanging from those barbed wires. They would rather take their own lives than have their lives taken. Exactly. What else do you remember about that place? People who gave up hope, very few survived. Even though you found yourself in a hopeless and helpless situation, one thing the Nazis couldn't take away from you, what was in your mind. What kept me going even after I was separated from my father subsequently and sent to Dachau camp. What kept me going is I said to myself, you have to go on, be strong if you want to see your loved ones again. Of course, we didn't know at the time they all perished in the Holocaust. So that's what kept me going. You had to have something positive in your mind to keep you going. Holocaust survivor Jack Adler, who lives in Denver, His story continues after a break, how the images of Nazi uniforms and swastikas came back to haunt him in America decades after the war. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with Holocaust survivor Jack Adler. He lives in Denver. May, he says, is his second birthday. We'll hear more about why a little later. Adler says he narrowly escaped death in a Polish ghetto. He says he had another brush with death when he first arrived at Auschwitz. Dr. Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death, had selected Adler along with other boys for what Adler didn't know at the time. But because a friend at the camp intervened, he was spared. After the war... At the Nuremberg trials, we found out what happened to those boys. They were selected on behalf of the German Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force. The German Air Force wanted to know how much pressure the human body can withstand. Each boy was placed into a pressure chamber. Once inside, the pressure was gradually turned up higher and higher until their eardrums and eyeballs would pop out. None of them survived. So I escaped twice certain deaths, once in the ghetto of Lodge and once at actual Auschwitz. But a week after we arrived, my father and I were selected and sent to the concentration camp at Kaufering, Germany. It was under the jurisdiction of Dachau, actually. Even though they knew they were losing the war, late summer 1944, they built 11 new concentration camps at Kaufering. Mm. Uh, with the idea of killing Jews in record speed before perhaps the fall of the German government. Use them as much as they can for whatever purpose. In our particular case, my father and I were assigned to work at the construction site where the Nazis were building underground hangars for airplanes. I see. So both for extermination and to extract as much labor as possible. And Eventually, you wound up at Dachau. Yes. And I understand you were assigned to work for a high-ranking SS colonel. In previous interviews, you've called him a decent person. What did he do? You know, we marched to and from work, four groups of 500 each, five across, guarded from backside by armed Nazi guard. Each group of about 25 prisoners had a couple, K-A-P-O, assigned to them. A couple was like a foreman. It was his job to make sure whatever assignment was given to his group of prisoners is being performed properly. An overseer of exactly. some kind. Mm-hmm. Yes. One day, the commanding officer, who was an SS colonel, called my couple in and ordered him to send him a young prisoner to keep his office clean. Being the youngest one in the group, he picked me for the job, which was much easier. All I had to do was sweep the floor, dust the furniture. It was getting cold by then, and he had a wood-burning stove. I had to make sure the fire keeps going. So daily, the first thing I would do is sit down as I come to his office, sit down on the floor, empty out the ashes from the wood-burning stove. And almost on a daily basis, within the ashes, I would find neatly wrapped in a wax paper, pieces of bacon, pieces of bread, he wanted me to find or else would have thrown it into the garbage. It's something that helped to survive. Did your father make it? My father, as a matter of fact, last year I was invited by the German government for the 70th anniversary 
luxury of the liberation of Dachau. Yeah. I went with my son. And they took us to one room where they had lists from ceiling to floor with names of those who perished in Dachau. And I found my father died March 16, 1945. Is that a date you had not known? I knew he died. I didn't know the exact date. What was it to learn that date? It was uh, it was unbelievable. My son found it. He looked over and he says, Dad, I think we found you. Your father's date of death. They, one thing they were good, the Nazis kept good records. Well, your time at Dachau uh, ends with the Dachau Death March. Um, in April of 1945, the SS ordered about 7,000 prisoners to start marching. At this point in the war, Soviet troops were on the trail of the Nazis, and the Third Reich was, of course, on the edge of defeat. And so the SS evacuated several concentration camps. These marches went on for days. And this was shortly before U.S. troops liberated the Dachau camp. What do you remember of the march? We marched all during daylight hours. At night, we would sleep in the woods. But they would take prisoners to the other side of the woods. They were given shovels in order to dig a big ditch. When the ditch was completed, they were ordered to line up around the perimeter of the ditch, and they were shot to death. That is to say they dug their own graves. Yeah. When we were liberated four days after we began the march, there were less than 4,000 of us left. So starting at 7,000 down to 4,000, that means that 3,000 people had dug their Died own graves. Died or were killed, yes. You know, it was early in the morning, May 1, 1945, when I heard the older people speaking loud and the Nazis prohibited communication even amongst us. So I crawled over. I said, what's going on? He said, they're gone. I said, who's gone? The SS, the killers, were gone. And they left behind the Wehrmacht, to keep an, the regular army, to keep an eye on us. And within a few minutes, tanks, trucks, jeeps arrived. And when they saw us, they stopped right in front of us. We didn't know who they were. I never saw an American military vehicle. One of the officers got on a hood of a jeep with a bullhorn, and he says, this is the United States Army. You are all free. And we were liberated by the United States 3rd and 7th Army under the command of General Dwight David Eisenhower and George Patton. What is the date? May 1, 1945. May so what does this month mean to you? Like, is May a fraught month for you? Well, it, uh, I called it my second birthday. Did you comprehend what it meant to be free? Uh, you'd been under the Nazi thumb for so long. I just, I, I don't know what, how, how did you take that message? Okay, well, I was 16 years old. I was very weak. I wouldn't have made it one more day. And if you were unable to continue the march, they wouldn't leave you behind alive. And I was immediately hospitalized in a newly formed displaced persons camp yeah, at Firenwald, Germany. My hospitalization lasted about three months. When I was checked in, I was told I weighed 65 pounds. 65 pounds. Do you remember how, how tall you were? Five, six at the time. Jeez. I just made it in time. I wonder to what extent that experience of an American announcing you were free 
influenced your decision to come to America? Do you think that there was a literal tie there? Well, first of all, I'd like to interject one thing. Yeah. Most of the soldiers who liberated us were young soldiers, I would say between 19 and 21. Not much older than you. They couldn't comprehend what they came upon. And many wept. They couldn't believe dead bodies on one side and people ready to die on the other side. When they put me in the amb- in a United States Army ambulance for the hospital, one of the soldiers handed me a belt that they pulled off a dead SS officer they killed. And the buckle, I, I give it to my son now, but the buckle has a swastika in the center, and around the swastika it reads, God mit uns, God is with us. That's what the SS killers wore. That's what they believed about what they were doing. Absolutely. So you come to the United States, and how is life here? How is adjusting to it? I was brought by the Jewish Children's Bureau in December of 1946 and placed to live in a wonderful foster home in Chicago, Illinois, where I first attended night school to learn the language finished high school, college. I proudly served in the United States Army during the Korean conflict. Did, I, did, did the foster family feel like family, or well, did it feel very temporary? They were very wonderful. They extended to me so much love and care that I regained faith in humanity. That's a big they thing. Were, yes, they were wonderful. And, and you became a U.S. citizen, as you say. You served in the military, and um, you moved to the suburb of Skokie outside Chicago. That's right. And that suburb wound up making national news because it was something of a flashpoint in new tensions around Jews. Yeah, the American Nazi Party wanted, because of the, in, uh, the large survivors living in Skokie. And as a matter of fact, my son who's a twice Emmy-winning cinematographer, made a movie about it, Surviving Skokie. Yes, and this is in the late 1970s that uh, essentially this this American Nazi party tries to make hay in Skokie. And the irony of it all is that the leader of it was a, a son of a survivor, of a German survivor. This National Socialist Party of America, they wore Nazi-like uniforms. So they had, of course, they had swastikas on their the whole thing. What was it like seeing that imagery again? Beyond comprehension. Disbelief. Total disbelief. How did that situation end? Well, it, it made me do what I am doing now for 25 years, lecture about the Holocaust, what it did, how to prevent it, hopefully, but I understand you didn't talk to your two children about the Holocaust until after they'd finished high school. Is That's that right? right. I, I wonder why you waited. For the same reason, I remember my father wouldn't give us details of what to anticipate, what to expect. I didn't want to instill any fear in their young lives. And I just didn't feel it's a ripe time until after they graduated. Did they wonder where their grandmother was or their grandfather? That's my son, you know, especially. He wanted to know. He knew the father had an accent. He must have come from Europe. 
but he had no detailed information mm-hmm. until he actually heard the story. By the time he had graduated high right. school. You've gone back to Poland. Uh, the first time was in 2011. That's true. But you'd sworn never to go back. That's right. But I was invited by the March of the Living. It's an organization that supervises students from all over the world who want to go to see the place where this horrible thing happened. And they like to hear an actual survivor speak to them about it. And I I just couldn't say no. So I've been doing it for a few years on behalf of the March of the Living. And what, what is it like to be back there? Chills initially when I went in. You know, we landed in Auschwitz, walked through the infamous gate, Arbeit macht frei. Work uh, makes free. Mm-hmm. Total disbelief. Does it sting less as you go back more? Uh, you know, I speak a lot. I have spoken to over a million and a half students, civic and church groups, and I speak to our military all over the country. When I speak, I try not to visualize what I'm talking about. But when it creeps in, even after 70-some years, it hurts a great deal. You shared a lot of this in a memoir in 2012. And I wonder if you are very religious today. What is your relationship to Judaism? I'm very proud of my heritage, my Jewish heritage. However, I'm not what you would consider very religious. What I believe is that God created man and man created evil. We are responsible the way we treat or mistreat each other. That is to say, there's a responsibility, you think, that's on us as individuals. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a power that's bestowed upon us to choose, good or or bad. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We don't have to love everyone. We don't even have to like everyone. But we should respect everyone because mutual respect and the golden rule do unto others as you like them to do unto you, is the key to the survival of humanity. Until humanity, in my opinion, embraces this, we will continue to destroy each other, as we are, as I speak, in many parts of the world. Jack, one other key, I understand, to your survival has been humor. Yes. It doesn't seem like you could find much Exactly. It's amazing. People have a double take when you say humor. Every guard had the name. I can't repeat it on the, on the air. And, and so these, were the, not, these were nicknames. <laughs> this gave us an upper hand. They couldn't do anything about it. We had ugly names for them as they marched us to and from work on a daily basis and watched us during work. So we said, so-and-so is coming, watch out. And we have ugly names for all of them. How does humor help today? I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I think humor helps every day. I think it's an important, if you want to call it a medicine, call it as such, because it's very important for every human being to have a little sense of humor. It helps to overcome daily obstacles. When we... Uh, greeted you in the lobby. Someone said, hi, Jack. And what was your joke? Well, I didn't. I said, don't say it at the airport. Don't say hi, Jack, at the airport. (laughs) Jack Adler, thank you for being with us. Thank you. 
Holocaust survivor Jack Adler is 88 and lives in Denver. His sense of humor came out further after our conversation. My producer asked him if it's hard to keep telling his story. He said to help get through it, he carries around a photo of his pride and joy. And then he pulled out a worn photograph of pride laundry detergent and joy dish soap. In recent months, we've documented the other other stories of Holocaust survivors in Colorado, and we have collected those at CPRnews.org. There's a lot to be afraid of if you get lost in the wilderness, mountain lions, frostbite. But what if the scariest thing is confronting yourself? The novel Breaking Wild is about two women. One's gone missing during a hunting trip north of Grand Junction. The other woman, a ranger, tries to find her. Breaking Wild is a national bestseller, and it is up for a Colorado Book Award. Author Diane Lebeck is here with me. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And let's start with this hunter who goes missing. Amy Ray is in her 30s. She's a mother of two. Her grandfather taught her to hunt when she was a kid. And she's on this hunting trip with two men. Neither of them are her husband. What's going on with her? What's going on is she's a very independent woman. Um, It's not unlikely for women to hunt by themselves or to go off with men who are friends. So I certainly wasn't setting up the scenario to to ring anything risque with her husband or anything like that. She just she's just a lover of the outdoors and she's embracing that opportunity. But you are hinting at something that will develop later in the book. We'll talk about that a bit later in the conversation. Um. We learn more about her somewhat complicated relationship with men as she reflects while she's lost in the woods. Um, She sneaks away from the hunting party to kill an elk with her bow, and things take a turn. Um, This bow, which in many ways separates her from other hunters, you know, who prefer to use a gun, winds up literally separating her as well. Talk about her bow and her approach to hunting and, and what symbol that represents. Sure. So so for a bow hunter to be successful with a hunt, the bow hunter has to become completely intimate with the wilderness and understand the habitat as well as the behaviors of the animal that the, the hunter's stalking. And in many ways, what that does for her is the bow gives her power over the demons in her past. So in some ways, she's actually stalking and hunting past demons in her life. Hmm. And uh, what what gives you insight into bow hunting? I had moved to a small ranching town in northwestern Colorado, where I lived for about 14 years, raising my three sons. And though I had hunted with a rifle before, I had never shot a bow. Um, I fell in love with the community of Maker Colorado and met a number of wonderful people who taught me the art of bow hunting and took me out for my first hunts. And from there, I ended up going off on my own. Why do you think that your character separates from her hunting party? She separates because they are holding her back. And in many ways, I think they become the noise to her personal exploration. So the wildlife in many ways represents her own interior geography. And with these men, they were rifle hunters, and they'd already gotten their kill. They'd filled their tag. But for her, it was so much more than that. And yet at the same time, she's really competitive. You know, she does not want to be the one who leaves the wilderness without an elk. But she also is trying to make an incredibly difficult decision in her life. And having that time alone without the noise puts her in touch with the solace and solitude of nature. Will you read a passage uh, from the novel for us, Diane? 
Sure. So I'm going to read a passage where she is actually on the hunt by herself. The elk was directly in line, standing broadside, an exact 30 yards she was sure. She gauged his brow tine at roughly 10 to 12 inches and counted four points from each side of his rack. With the 45 pounds she was pulling, he was within reach of a clean shot. She raised her bow. The 30-yard pin on her scope locked on the branches in front of her. She calculated the arc of the arrow. It should rise the 15 yards and clear the opening. She drew her bow, steadied her left arm. She wondered if her breath would skew her aim. She held the air tight in her lungs. The elk turned his head, his eyes frozen at a direct point with her own. Seconds moved between them like rainwater through mud. She flexed her shoulders, creating enough back tension to discharge the release. The arrow sailed, cleared the trees, and made contact with the animal, its impact like a sharp clap against plywood. The elk pivoted and sprang in one broad leap back into the wall of timber from which he had emerged, his body crashing through the woods, snapping and breaking limbs. Is that similar to a shot you've taken? It is. It's actually... I'm capturing an exact shot that I took. How was that? It's really a powerful and mysterious experience. You're in the the dawn hours. You're watching the moon rise. You're feeling every sense of nature on your body. And then this massive, wonderful, beautiful animal comes into your sight. And to make that eye contact, I will never forget that. And then to let that arrow fly, there's something very beautiful about it, but there's also something very traumatic about it. It's, it's kind of a knot all tangled up in one. Where does the trauma come from? The trauma comes from knowing that you are taking something else's life. And I don't think that ever goes unfelt with the true hunters. So this character, Amy Ray, ends up getting hurt as she separates from her hunting party. She finds a cave where she shelters for quite a while, and a search party begins looking for her. One of the searchers is Prue. She's the other narrator of the book. She's a single mother in her 40s and works for the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, Some backstory here. She lost her first love when she was young. And I understand that she is the character most like you. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. How so? So I just really identified with her as a single mother. I was a single mother of three sons. And those sons, I mean, her son, Joseph, really defines her. And he's actually based on my middle son when he was that age. His name's Seth Joseph. And I I felt like she's also navigating her own terrain, as is Amy Ray navigating a personal terrain, and that terrain is one of grief. I, My first love um, was the Forrester, and he was in my life for two years. And then years and years later in my life, I met another Forrester who was also in my life for two years, and both died very traumatic deaths. And for me, the only way I could navigate myself through my grief was to be in the wilderness and to feel that just vast open sky and just the whole beauty of every molecule in my body. And that was what truly got me through it. And I wanted Prue to experience the same thing. That time in nature can be healing, but it can also be really difficult, like to be alone with your thoughts. It's challenging. There's no doubt that Amy Ray feels that. What do you want to say about the demons she is working through, which connect to her relationships with men? Sure, sure. So Amy Ray has suffered a great deal of trauma in her own life. She was victim of, of sexual molestation. And 
I have worked with a number of students. I'm also a professor of creative writing, and I've worked with a number of students who are writing memoirs, and they're you know, sorting through their own past. And some of them have had their own sexual addictions and things that you would not necessarily, you know, associate with a female. So often when we read about books, read books with about men who are dealing with these types of things. But in this book, I wanted it to be two women who in many ways are having to inhabit a man's world. And Amy Ray struggles with her own addictions, as have a number of people I've known. What I think I hear you saying is that in literature, perhaps in memoir, the notion of sexual addiction in women or sexual compulsion in women as a result of trauma they've experienced, perhaps, is 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 underexplored. Do you think that's true? I do. I really do. And I think that women are still wanting to be respected because we as women have a target on our backs at all times. And so if we come forward and say, hey, I have a sexual addiction, then we can be dismissed. And so women keep that to themselves oftentimes without getting help because of fear of what they may lose. Uh, and it's true that your one of your main characters, Amy Ray, who has gone missing and is forced to confront some of her demons, if you will, in the Colorado wilderness, she is struggling with her marriage. She is. And whether she still loves her husband. Well, I think she knows that she loves her husband as much as she is capable of loving. But if anything, she's coming to this really honest point in her life where she's realizing what love really means, and love means sacrifice. And if she's not able to change her ways and her behaviors and make peace with this, then wouldn't the most honest decision be to let her husband go, to leave him, so that she would not hurt him any anymore, even though he's not even aware of what she is doing. She's kept it a very clandestine um, life. And so, yeah, she's got to make that decision. And if, to me, in some ways, if she chooses to stay with him, is that saying she isn't really capable of love? And this is another dimension of her sexual compulsion, how it affects her marriage, her other relationships. Is this a life or death situation she's in? Is it a make or break moment for her? Sure. Physically, it's a life or death situation. And yet, if we read between the lines, we know that emotionally, it's also a life or death situation. Yeah, it's good. What do you think is driving Prue, the ranger, to find your main character, Amy Ray, because it, it just seems like it's more than uh, the responsibility of her job. It is. And I think it's it's Prue's close encounter with death through her love, Brody. And it's a grief she's carried with her for a long time. And what she realizes is we never truly know everything about a person. And as the secrets and past, you know, as the flaws of Amy Ray become so well known, what Prue is worried about is that she will only be known for her flaws. And what Prue realizes is that Amy Ray is also a mother, and there's nothing to suggest she was a poor mother. And so she wants to give back to Amy Ray's husband and to Amy Ray's children the gift of knowing she still had good qualities and that she wants her to be remembered if she is dead What about the good things in her life and the good things that she's done. I think everybody is worth saving. There's a, a real redemption theme in the book. If she survives, we'll keep that in. If thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. That's author Diane LeBeck. Her new novel is Breaking Wild, and it's a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. Tonight, she'll be at the Park Hill branch of the Denver Public Library for a book talk. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
For high school seniors, now is the time of proms, graduation ceremonies, and getting everyone you want to sign your yearbook to do so. All that takes on a whole new meaning, though, when the class of 2017 has four kids. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine hit the road to Lone Star School near Otis, Colorado, to introduce us to the senior class. The first thing I notice inside Lone Star School hits me right inside the front door. Everybody leaves their lockers open. They don't lock them. They don't even close them. That's the kind of place this is. I haven't closed my lockers since junior high. That's Austin Kuntz. He's one of Lone Star's seniors and says he's related to half the kids here. If something went missing, he'd know pretty quick who it was. It might be one of your cousins. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Plus, the school only has four hallways, so hard to hide. Lone Star is a K-12 school. There are 17 students in high school, total. So let's meet the graduating class of 2017. They get a couple of words to describe themselves. Zach Hamer. Definitely loud. Jessica Bassett. Pretty shy. Austin Kuntz. Hardworking. And Deidre Parker. I'm the more productive one out of all of us. Hardly. (laughs) No, I am. Having a school this small is unusual. So let's start with some of the questions that I know are on your mind. Do you guys have a class president? We're all the presidents. There is a student council. I'm actually uh, the vice president for student council, but we haven't like had any meetings for it exactly. What about senior prom? Who goes? I mean, it would be no fun if it was just us four being (laughs) senior prom. The prom had all the classes. Austin says maybe 10 couples. Zach begs to differ. There was 15 on the sign-up sheet for out-of-town dates. Yes, they had a senior trip, and there is a yearbook, and seniors get their own page. Driving to Lone Star School is just cool. It's in the middle of fields 20 miles from the nearest town, which happens to be Otis, Colorado. On this day, it's super foggy. You can't even see the cornfields. It's like you're next to the ocean, except it's the eastern plains. The seniors say there are some distinct advantages to a small, isolated school where teachers really get to know each student. Deidre says some schools don't care if you hand in your homework. They'll just put a zero. And these teachers, if you don't hand in your homework, they're going to be on you, like, asking, okay, hey, why didn't you do it? Like, how can we help you understand this so you do it? Like, what can we do to help you? In sum, says Zach. They care so much. It's it's ridiculous. Have a great weekend, Miss Amber. Any club and sports team you're interested in, you can do it. No need for tryouts. Like last year, we had Sandra just on the track team. For most team sports, kids travel to other schools. Zach, who is a rodeo champ, says the school's real sport is FFA, or Future Farmers of America. The four seniors are super proud of FFA. They learn everything ag, livestock judging contests, floriculture, also parliamentary procedure in running meetings. The school just won state championships in soil analysis. Check out the school website. That's something that will go in the yearbook. Okay, 1975, there are two kids. There's Ron and then Susie. As the yearbook's co-editor, Jessica flips through past yearbook senior pages hung in a hall. There's three kids that graduated. She sees there's a history of small senior classes at Lone Star. And the small size may have helped her. She's the newest member of the gang of four. At schools in other states, she was often in trouble. She recalls one incident. And then it started a big argument between me, her, and my other two friends, so they went with her. There was less drama, she notices, at a small school. She feels more stable. 
31-year veteran teacher Susan Samber says the size has let another kid in the class really focus on overcoming a reading disability. They can overcome those obstacles that at bigger schools, they just... I think would succumb to them. In Samber's government class, they go over a quiz they took on the book Animal Farm. Snowball represents Leon Leon Chow. Oh my gosh, he's very good. (laughs) In some classes, like this one, the four seniors are together. Sometimes they split up with other grades. There's an easy familiarity between Samber and her students, like they've known each other forever. She was nine? No, I missed nine of those. The teachers are practically family. Here's Austin. Your friends that you go to school with are family, and it's just a big, giant pot of family. I mean, it's just fun. But there are downsides to being in a small class. Deidre says... Everyone knows your business. Like, you know... Case in point. We're talking about the wide open roads to get to this school. It's just you and the cornfields. If you're 10 minutes late to school, you won't see a car on the road. I guarantee it. And you can't use the excuse of traffic. No. And when you're late like Zach almost every day, knowing him and how far he lives. Zach whispers to her, don't say anything about the speeding. (laughs) When he's late, he does go a little, a little faster. Does that work? And like some families, the kids admit they probably wouldn't be friends with each other at a different school. Like who knew Daedra would be friends with Zach, a steer wrestler? We all can have different personalities and it doesn't matter. There's only four of us, so we don't have a choice. You know, it's either we hate each other or we learn to like each other in the setting that we're in. But the boys... They like to annoy each other, that's for sure. Okay, that was my big question. Being around the same four people every day, some of them since kindergarten, what do they do when one of them is annoying the others? Just today, Austin was annoying Deidre, and she's like, you're really annoying me. And you just made it worse. So you're better off not saying anything when they're annoying. You're just like... <laughs> just just don't but those same boys, admits Deidre, have probably helped her grow. She says she likes to keep to herself, and at a bigger school, she probably wouldn't have many friends. They make me pop out of my bubble. Zach admits Daedra's probably been a good influence on him and Austin. Yeah, she kind of brings us back down, because Austin and I will get pretty out of hand. So what's next for this group of graduates? Zach's won a full-ride scholarship for rodeo to study ag science in Border, Texas. Austin's headed to Cheyenne to study diesel mechanics. He's worried about being in a class of 20 instead of 4. Daedra's headed to Denver, possibly to a community college. Jessica wants to study business administration, not sure where yet. Daedra talks about what it's going to be like when they leave each other. I think it's going to be sad because even on your grumpiest days, like, they always know how to brighten your day up. And it's like, without being able to know that they're there, I think it will be hard. And Zach? I don't really want to talk about this, frankly. (laughs) Because... I mean, this this is my school, this is my family. These seniors have grown up in front of each other, in front of much younger kids in the school. Zach says it's a little aggravating at times being in the same hallway as the little kids, but he says it shapes the high schoolers into adults, makes them build character, and it gives the little ones something to look up to and strive for. And that's what he'll miss the most. We all put our differences aside when it comes to the kids, when it comes to the next generation, when it comes to the school, to work for the greater good. And that's that's what I'm going to miss the most. Graduation is later this week. The ceremony is pretty traditional, but with only four Lone Star seniors, each gets a gift from the superintendent, and each gets to share their own personalized slideshow with the audience. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. And you can follow Jenny on Twitter at CPR Brandine. I'm at CPR Warner.
Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio News.